All right, we are back to the Gospel of Luke. We are back in Luke chapter 9. If you are new to us and you've been coming just in recent weeks, we've not been in Luke, we've been in a different series, but uh, about a year ago, almost I guess last Christmas, we started an exposition of the Gospel of Luke. So we started working through our, our, working our way through this Gospel, and uh, we're returning to it today, going to Luke chapter 9. We left off at the end of chapter 8 last time uh, as we did a brief series, and now we're back in it. Luke chapter 9. Our text for today will be verses 1 through 9. Um, I was almost tempted to go to verse 17 just because there's so much, but, but because there's so much there, I stopped at verse 9, and I think we'll have enough for us to consider today uh, as we continue on in this journey through Luke. Luke chapter 9, I want to begin reading in verse 1. These are the words um, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. We read as follows. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, had heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now, it's important for us to see here as we come into chapter 9, just kind of a bit of reminder, because it's been a while, in the previous chapter, and really the previous few chapters, we have seen how Jesus has been the sole agent of his earthly ministry. He has been the one who the scripture has been uh, certainly honed in on, and he has been the one that has been going about and teaching and healing and performing these miracles. In fact, in the past chapter or so, we have seen how the miracles themselves, there's been a number of them, healings and, uh, and miracles of creation as he calms a storm and casting out of demons and those type things, raising the dead even, how these miracles confirmed the authority that Jesus had. These miracles were all part of this, this plan of God to highlight the fact that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. He is the one that had been promised from of old, and he has now come, and he has arrived, and he is about his father's business, and he is about bringing in and ushering in this, this kingdom. And now, there's a bit of a transition in chapter 9, a bit of a, a shift, we could say, not strong one, not a, not a major one, as Jesus certainly will continue his ministry. But the change that we see here is that while he's been the sole agent of his earthly ministry, he's now going to expand his ministry base. He's now going to give his disciples authority and a specific calling to be sent out to do 
pretty much some of the very same things he had been doing, teaching and healing. So what we see here in chapter 9 is now Jesus commissions the 12 disciples, or the 12 apostles, we can say, for active ministry. They've been in observation mode up until this point. They've been walking with Jesus. They've been seeing him do these things. They've been hearing him teach these amazing things and seeing him do all of these glorious miracles. And now, all of a sudden, he turns to them and says, you go do, in like, you go, you go do likewise. You, you go and preach, and you go and heal. So he mobilizes and deploys the 12 for active ministry. The disciples are commissioned, and they are sent. You know, as Christians, we are called always to be in a posture of learning. That's what we do as disciples. We follow Jesus, and we seek to reflect his character and seek to walk in his ways as disciples. We learn from him that we might look more and more like him. But that doesn't mean that's the only thing that we do. It's not the only posture we have. It's not that we are called to Christ and that the only thing that we do as Christians is seek to grow in our understanding and intellectual understanding of who Christ is. We are given responsibility to serve and to minister and to do a number of things for the sake of the king and the sake in advance of the kingdom of God. As Christians, yes, we are to be in a state of learning, but there is that time when we must not only be students, but we must also be active participants in ministry. So as we take a look at the commissioning of these early disciples, we're going to draw a couple of observations out of this passage about what gospel ministry includes. A couple of observations that we see regarding gospel ministry and what it entails. Now it's important for us to know if we're going to do faithful Bible study. Sometimes when we, one of the things that we need to understand is that we're in the gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke is largely a narrative you have different genres of scripture, and the Gospel of Luke is a narrative. It's recounting a, in story form what took place in the earthly ministry of Jesus from Luke's perspective. And as a narrative, we need to understand that everything you find in a narrative is not always prescriptive, meaning you read it and you emulate it exactly as it's written. Many times, as we have a narrative, we have something that is descriptive. It's merely explaining what took place. And then it's our job to take what took place, as we read it here in chapter 9, compare it to what we have in the rest of Scripture so that we understand how we, today, in 2020, rightly apply it. And so, if you're not careful, you can come to a passage like this and think, we've got to do exactly like they did it. And we would be in error if we're not careful. And so we need to understand what is it that Jesus is showing us here. And by the Holy Spirit through now the eyes of Luke, what is it that Luke is explaining? And how as, as Christians today are we to understand it? And how is that to direct and guide us today? Well, that's what we want to look at. A couple of aspects that we see regarding gospel ministry. First thing that we see is that it's a purposeful ministry. 
It's a purposeful ministry. It's always amazing to me. It's always amazing to me to consider that when God works, he chooses to work through means. Now, it's not always the case. He's done lots of things that we see in the scripture where he does something and he does it unilaterally. He does it completely on his own. We think about creation, for example many other things that we could point to in the scripture. But many times when we look throughout the Old and New Testament, one of the things that's amazing to me is that when God works, he chooses to work through ordinary, flawed people. He invites people to join him in the work that he is doing. It's it's really crazy to consider that. That God would invite us, the holy creator of the universe, would invite flawed, sinful people like us to join him in the work that he's doing in his world. It's amazing to me. And it's really something that's crazy to consider. Whether you're in full-time ministry, whether you're going to Twin Falls, Idaho, or whether you're here in St. Mary's County in full-time ministry, or whether you're simply serving as a layperson in your local church, in your local community, it's amazing and humbling that God would choose to use us and the things that he's doing. As we look at this newly established ministry team here in Luke chapter 9, Jesus assembles these guys and he calls them together and he sends them out. And there's several observations I want us to see about what, we, what, what he's doing here. Several takeaways about gospel ministry that we can see just implied here and directly stated in, in many aspects as he sends out the 12. First of all, Faithful gospel ministry will always recognize the true source of authority. Gospel ministry will always recognize the true source of authority. Here we have a group of fishermen, tax collector, a political zealot, and some others that are being called together now. They've been walking with Jesus for a while. Now they're being called to be sent out on a mission of significant importance. And these guys are going to go out proclaiming the kingdom, preaching the gospel, and healing. We're going to come back to those things in just a moment. But just think about that. They were going to go out. And listen, if they were going to be sent out to serve the cause of the gospel and serve the cause of the kingdom, they were not going to be able to do that in and of themselves, in their own strength or their own wisdom. If so, if if they were going to go in their own strength, in their own wisdom, nothing of significance would have happened. We wouldn't have much of the rest of this gospel and how the Lord used these men. Rather, we're told here that they don't go in their own strength and their own power. They're given power and authority. Look at the text. And he called the twelve together and gave them. It's a key word there, gave. He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Think about that for a minute. In previous chapters, Luke has built the case that Jesus was the one with authority. Chapter 7, chapter 8, that's really the main overarching point. Jesus is teaching, he's healing, he's raising the dead, he's calming storms, and it's just a, it's a loud, loud 
point that, that the Lord is making in these earlier chapters that Jesus is the one with authority. You need to look to him. You need to pay attention to him because I have sent him. I have given him authority, and he is the promised one. That's the point of those earlier chapters. And now Jesus calls his 12 together, and he's like, all right, you guys are going to go out, and you guys are going to have the same authority that I have. pretty amazing. The very same authority that we've seen on display in miraculous ways in previous chapters now is the very same authority that Jesus is giving to his 12 disciples so that they too now can go out and proclaim the truth and to heal. They were going out as Official ambassadors, sent ones. That's where we get the word apostle. That's what the word apostle means, sent one. They were going to be sent out with Christ's authority to perform many mighty works. And friends, this is just a reminder to us that Jesus doesn't send his followers, whether then or today, to do ministry without also giving them the authority by which to do it. Now, it's important to understand that these men played a unique role for a unique season and it's everything that they did is not something that we necessarily are going to see replicated in ministry today we need to understand and we're going to see more about this in a moment when we talk about some of these miracles that the miracles that they were commissioned and given authority to perform played a specific role they weren't an end in and of themselves One of the things that we're reminded of very clearly here is that these 12 disciples, they did nothing in their own authority. They did nothing in their own authority. They were given Christ's authority. And brothers and sisters, when we think about our responsibilities and roles today in ministry, we are also those who have been called to serve the advance of the gospel, to go therefore and make disciples but right before that, what do you, in Matthew chapter 28, what do, you, what do you remember Jesus says? He says this. Before he says, go therefore and make disciples, he says what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He claims the authority and that he sends his disciples into the world. And the, the disciples, whether these 12 in earlier ministry or us as disciples today, as we go forth, we are going with an authority that is not ours. And friends, that should be encouraging to you. That should be motivating to us. This should give us confidence in the ministry that's before us. When, when we go for the sake of the king, we are going with a delegated authority. It's not up to us. It's not our strength. It's not our wisdom. It's not our authority to advance the kingdom of God. Friends, this world is hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. People don't always want to hear what we have to say. It's true in Idaho. It's true in Maryland. 
We live in a dark world. We live in a sin-cursed world. We live in a place where people are spiritually blind and they do not naturally understand the things of God. They are held captive. And if we think for a moment that we can just go to anybody in this world that is held captive and is blind to the truth of the gospel and that we have the capability on our own with our intellect and with our reasoning and with our own wisdom that we can convince them to walk in a way that is contrary to where they've been, we are fooling ourselves. The reason that we have conf- the reason that Joshua and Liz can have confidence in Twin Falls, Idaho has nothing to do with them. Has nothing to do with Southern Seminary, as great as a place that is. Amen to that. Has everything to do with the authority that Christ has. The same is true for each of us. Even as Christ ambassadors today, we go with a clear message. And as we go with that clear message, the authority behind that rests in the message and is given by Christ. Because that's confidence we have. The good news is that the ministry is not ultimately dependent upon us. We go recognizing a greater authority. Now, the authority that the 12 were given was for a specific purpose, for a specific time. If you read later on in Luke chapter 9, uh, they have trouble casting out a demon. And so it seems that, that the authority that they're given here for this early ministry circuit, we could say, is a temporary authority that they're given for a specific task. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But again, just kind of backing up from that, we just, we just need to understand that, that in general, whether it's these 12 for a specific role that they played or for us today and the calling that we have as, as the church, we are dependent upon an authority that is not our own. And that should not cause us to shrink back in fear, but rather to go forward in bold faith and confidence, even taking risk for the sake of the king. So, first thing that we see about this ministry and its purpose is it recognizes the true source of authority. Number two, it moves forward in dependent humility. As the disciples are sent, they are instructed to take nothing with them. You see that in verse 3. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. It's a shirt type thing. So just basically wear the clothes you've got on and go. In other words, they are being called to travel light. For one thing, they weren't going all that far. They were going in fairly close proximity to where they were, and they wouldn't be gone all that long. But still, this is a significant demand. Why does Jesus say this? Why do we have inspired scripture that details in verse 3 and 4 that the disciples were to go, but they weren't to take anything with them. Well, some say that it was because the mission was urgent. They they just needed to go. They didn't need to stop and prepare and plan and those kinds of things. It was urgent. And certainly that's true. It was an urgent mission. Or others will say it could be that Jesus didn't want his followers being distracted by too many worldly things. And that's certainly an element of truth, too. It could very much be the case that he didn't want them distracted from having to worry about all of the, their food and necessities, but just go focused on the mission and God would provide for them. But it's most likely 
that Jesus gives them this demand because he ultimately didn't want them to look like charlatans and beggars. And the reason we think that that is the most likely sense of why he's explaining this is because it was a common thing in this culture for groups, specifically certain types of philosophers. They would go around begging and begging and begging and, and, and they would go around to town after town after town, home after home after home, and doing all of these things to try to, to drum up food and different kinds of things, and it became a distraction. He wanted his disciples to go forward in humble faith, where it was crystal clear that the ministry was their priority. Their ministry was not to burden those they served, but rather was to serve those they were sent to. They were to trust the Lord. They were to look to him for provision. They were to understand that for their needs, God would give them what they needed. They were to stay in one place, we're told. Oftentimes, they would go to certain towns and there was no hotels back in there, and so they would stay with families. Host, families would host them. And this was common. Anybody traveling, you would just stay with somebody. Um, and so they were to stay in one place. They weren't to go about trying to change homes. Just go stay in one place and focus on the ministry. The Lord would give them what they needed. Now, if you jump to Luke chapter 22, I think it's two, uh, 22. Um, yes, verse 35. This is later on. This is when Jesus is explaining, right after Jesus explained to Peter that he was going to deny him. He said to them, verse 35, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. <clears throat> so a reason I point you to that passage is that you can't take Luke chapter 9 and say, Okay, as God's people, we're never to think about money, we're never to think about food, we're never to think about protection, we're never to think about any of these things. We just trust God and go. Well, of course not. I mean, in chapter 22, he's saying, actually, you need to get these things now. So that's my point, is you can't just take a verse and say, well, that's what it said, that's, that's, that's how they did it, that's how we need to do it exactly like that. That's, that's not the point we need to take away. There's a greater point here. Remind, remind you, as I said earlier, not everything in Scripture is prescriptive. Oftentimes we have something that is descriptive. So if Jesus is giving this demand, what is his point? I think his point is simply that they should look to him in trust of what he would provide for them for this particular assignment. It's not as if Jesus is giving this blanket demand on all followers from this point forward that never should they think about practical needs. These were itinerant missionaries that had a narrow focus for a short period of time. And so we can't even compare that to, to those who go to Idaho or overseas or wherever long term. It's not a one-to-one -to -two, -to -one comparison. They were to go about ministry in humble dependence upon Christ, understanding that their priority was the assignment they had been given to preach and to heal. I think the instruction for us today is that we too 
should keep the ministry as our main concern and trust the Lord to meet our daily needs. I think one of the things that you take away from this passage is that they were not to be dependent upon the world to meet their needs as they go serve the world. I think you see many passages later on in Scripture and earlier even that help us understand that the church should provide for the needs of its ministers and those who go forth in making disciples. It's not the world's responsibility to take care of its people that it sends. The church, the, 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 those that go from the church to, to, to minister to the world. The, the world should never be burdened by the needs of God's people. So we should understand that the Lord will certainly provide doesn't mean that we don't get jobs. It doesn't, doesn't mean that we don't fundraise. It doesn't mean pastors or ministry workers or missionaries don't take salaries. It's the church's responsibility to fund ministry, not the world's responsibility. So the focus here was that they were to entrust themselves to the Lord, not, distract, not be distracted from their ministry. And seeking to burden those that they ministered to with such needs would only take away from their ministry, not encourage it to those they ministered to. So we see that it has a it, this, this ministry moves forward in dependent humility upon the Lord. Number three, it has a clear priority. It has a clear priority. We've seen Jesus calls, he empowers, and he sends the 12 to go to the surrounding villages. We know they have the power to cast out demons and to heal, but was that their only purpose? Go back to verse 2. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Right before that, he's given them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So what's, what do we do? What, what, what was their task? Well, you see that they were called to preach and they were called to heal. And we assume in the midst of that that there would be casting out of demons or else we wouldn't have him had giving them authority to do so. Think about the signs and wonders, the healings, the exorcisms. They were not the main point of the mission, but rather served to complement a greater purpose. So let me break it down a bit. Let me, let me break this ministry that they were given to do down a little bit because I want to I I help us understand exactly what they were called to do and why. First of all, we need to look at the message they were called to preach. In verse 2, they're called to proclaim the kingdom of God. And in verse 6, we're told they went about preaching the gospel. In both verses, they were healing. So verse 2, they were proclaiming the kingdom of God. Verse 6, they were preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So what was their message? Was their message to preach the kingdom of God or to preach the gospel? Yes. These two things are connected. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, the gospel is often called the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel, when we say the gospel... We, are, we were referring to the good news of what God has done for sinners through sending his son, Jesus Christ, to bring about reconciliation. It's the declaration. When we proclaim the gospel, it is the declaration of the person and work of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection that secures the hope of eternal redemption for the people of God. We declare the good news. We are declaring the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. When we think about the kingdom of God, as Graham Goldsworthy defines it in his book, Gospel and Kingdom, it's God's people in God's place under God's rule. 
So when you think about the kingdom of God and the gospel, the declaration of the gospel is the announcement of how one can become, or how one can come under this rule, this saving rule of God. So by proclaiming the kingdom of God and the gospel, these disciples were announcing the inbreaking presence of the reign and realm of God's saving activity that brings freedom to those who have been held captive by another kingdom. That's what we're talking about. By proclaiming the kingdom of God and the gospel, the disciples were announcing the inbreaking presence of the reign and realm of God's saving activity that brings freedom, liberty to those held captive by another kingdom. I think it's important for us to say this. When you think about the kingdom of God, one of the first things that Jesus, we have recorded that, that Jesus preached was to repent for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's announcing this inauguration, this, this, in, this, this incoming, this, this, this inbreaking, we could say, of the kingdom of God. The kingdom had arrived, not in its full form, but the kingdom was present. The Old Testament had long anticipated this time, and now it's Jesus and now his disciples' responsibility to announce this inbreaking of God's kingdom. It's important that we understand this about the kingdom of God. Christians do not bring about the kingdom. God establishes his kingdom. We, as God's people, are simply called to announce its arrival and to point people how they, through the gospel, can become part of it. This was their message. Now, we know later on that this message would have further clarity once Christ did die and he was raised from the dead. And that message that we preach today certainly is a full message of who Christ is and what he came to do and how he did it. And that is the message we preach today. And so it's not a message of either kingdom of God or gospel. It is, yes, both. We preach the gospel so that people can be brought into the kingdom. Now think about that. Think about where they were in their day and time. If They were going about proclaiming the kingdom of God. They are proclaiming another kingdom in a day and time where the Roman Empire was in charge. They were the earthly kingdom. And so what you have here is a radical clash of kingdoms. You have Jesus saying to his followers, go tell people who live under the reign and rule of another king, go tell them that another kingdom has arrived. Go tell them that. It was a radical message in that day and time. It was, in essence, calling people to question all other kingdoms. I think it's a message that's no less radical today. Even in the midst of an election year, the most radically political statement you and I can make as Christians has nothing to do with the political party. The most radical political statement you and I can proclaim today is that there is a better and lasting kingdom led by an eternal king to whom we all must give accounts. A lot of times Christians will say, we're not very political. We're, we're quite political, but it has nothing to do with political parties. It has everything to do with the kingdom of God. There is an eternal king who reigns, and he's come to bring about his reign into this world. That's the message. 
Let's think about the confirmation. So what are we to do with the casting out of demons and healings everywhere? That's something we should do today. The text tells us they, that he sent them. He gives them power and authority over demons and cure diseases. And he sends them out to go do that, to proclaim, to, to preach this message, and to also heal and to cast out demons. Before we address how we should view that kind of activity today, we need to understand why the disciples were given this power. See, they were given this authority and they were given this power because as they went forward with this message, the miracles served as a confirmation to validate the message. They had, the, whole, the entire Old Testament had been preparing for this moment. Hundreds, thousands of years had been going by of preparing for this moment, for this arrival of the Messiah. Now the Messiah has arrived. He's on the scene. The kingdom has broke into this world. And you have all of these miracles taking place that accompany the message as validation for the truthfulness of that message. These miracles were acts of compassion, no doubt, serving real physical and spiritual bondage, but they were ultimately there to validate and confirm a message that delivered people from an even greater bondage. One question that often arises is whether or not we should expect such miracles today. So the disciples were sent, given authority over all demons to cure diseases. I said earlier that was temporary because you can see later on they, they, they can't cast out a demon. Is this something we should expect today? Should we have healing ministries? Should we send people out to heal and to cast out demons? Well, I'll let Pastor Jeremy come and share. I'm just kidding. Keeping him, keeping him honest. One of the things that we need to understand is when we read the scriptures, again, we need to understand context. Now, I personally do not see any biblical argument that says all miraculous signs have ceased once and for all. Indeed, I'm convinced that in places where the gospel is advancing for the first time, there is often miraculous signs that accompany the preaching of the gospel. But whereas in places where the gospel has been established, we don't see, nor should we expect, those miraculous signs. And I will say this, that much of what we see in charismatic circles today is a reckless abuse of what we see practiced in the Bible. And it's shameful. So I remain skeptical as to what, place, what takes place in many of those circles because I think it's a reckless abuse and application of Scripture. At the same time, I don't see that there's any limitation on how God chooses to work in his world. Do I believe that miracles still happen? Absolutely. Do I think that he still heals? Yes. Do I think that he can still cast out demons? Yes. We need to understand within this context, the reason these disciples were given this power and this authority was because in this unique time, this arrive, the arrival of the kingdom has come. And through these miraculous signs and wonders, we see that God is in essence saying through the message preached and now these miracles performed that the king is here. It's drawing attention to this truthfulness. And we shouldn't necessarily expect that that continues to carry on in the same way today. Preaching, yes. Miracles 
Maybe. I think we do see them, especially in places where the kingdom of God has yet to be announced and pronounced. So you see that they serve here as a confirmation, a validation of the gospel preached. And so it's not as if we see that, okay, that they're to heal and they're to proclaim, and both of these are of equal status in their mission. They are not. They were to proclaim, and the healings were to come underneath to support and confirm the thing they were proclaiming. But then we see number three under this, the reception. Notice it says, in, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. One of the things that Jesus does is he sends the disciples to prepare them. Uh, he, does, he does prepare them and he, he prepares them for reality. He's in essence telling them, some are going to receive you and some are not. So in verse 5, he instructs his disciples to leave and shake off the dust from their sandals if they're not received by some people. It was a symbol of disassociating oneself with another or a symbol declaring someone unclean. Jesus is just preparing them for the possibility of rejection here. Some will receive their messages and others will not. And I think a takeaway from this, this passage is, is that no one is ever neutral concerning the kingdom of God. The message of the gospel demands a choice. And what you see here is the disciples go forth and preach the good news of the kingdom. Oftentimes what happens when we proclaim the gospel, I think sometimes as Christians we think when we preach the gospel, we are preaching and some will either believe or some will not believe. And that's true. But one of the, thing, one of the realities of what takes place when we preach the gospel is sometimes we're exposing the condition of where people truly are and where they're choosing to remain. Preaching the gospel does bring life, but preaching the gospel is also a means that God uses to expose judgment, the reality of coming judgment. Sometimes our preaching will result in wonderful embrace of the truth, and other times there will be, mean, there, there will be those who, who don't respond. They remain in their unbelief. But listen, friends, the preaching of the gospel is never neutral. The results are never neutral. You're not preaching to a neutral people. We are preaching to a world that is lost in sin, and people will either remain lost in their sins or, by illumination of the Holy Spirit, they will be given eyes to see and ears to hear, and they will respond in faith to the truth of the gospel. There's no neutrality. It's not like we're preaching to people that are on the fence. No such person exists. The kingdom, when it's preached and proclaimed, announces good news, but it also exposes the reality of those who will not respond to it. So you see the message, you see the confirmation, and you see the reception. But last but not least, and very quickly, not only is this a purposeful ministry, it's a perplexing ministry. News of all that Jesus and his disciples had done and been doing had gone forth everywhere and even reached the palace of Herod. Herod was a political ruler of the area. And as he hears about this activity, the text tells us that he is perplexed. He's perplexed. Now here the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed. 
Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. Now, if you remember John, he's John the Baptist. Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. And he says later on in this text, so it can't be him, I killed him. I am confused. Who is this person? Some say it was John raised. Some say Elijah. Some, well, it must be one of the prophets of old. Herod doesn't seem to really buy any of these. He's curious. He's intrigued. He's perplexed. And we're told there in verse 9 that he sought to see him. We know that he eventually does. And I think if you go to the point where Jesus comes before Herod, I think you see very clearly there Herod's intentions, his motivations as to why he wanted to see Jesus. All Herod had heard about all that Jesus and his disciples were doing, all these wonderful miracles. I think all he wanted to see was just another miracle. He was just more interested in Jesus' entertainment than he was anything else. But the question he raises in this text is an important question. I want you to look at it. He's told by some that it could be John, by others, Elijah, others, one of the prophets of old. And Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? While Herod's motives may not have been pure, while he may have just been more curious than anything else, the question is an important question that demands a truthful answer. Who is this person of whom I hear about such things? things and he's given answers people are guessing it's almost like he's given a a public opinion poll as to who this person he's heard about is it's just a reminder to us that the lord isn't going to reward folks who do their best to guess at who jesus is when we can know for sure indeed the entirety of luke's gospel is given to answer this very question Jesus is not merely up for public opinion. But in the midst of this question, it's a question that needs an answer, not not an opinion poll. It needs a true answer, and it has a true answer. Friend, if you're here today, and maybe you're struggling with this very same question. Maybe you've come here today, or maybe you're watching on our live stream, and, and Jesus perplexes you. Maybe you, you come to the Gospels and you read these things and you're just, oh, I don't understand exactly all that he is and, and why he's doing all that he does. Maybe you're genuinely perplexed about Jesus. Maybe you've heard these stories or maybe you've heard them now for the first time and you just don't quite understand him. But friend, I would tell you that you've come to a good place and we would encourage you not to look to public opinion polls for the answer because you can find the true answer. Read the entirety of this gospel. Why would you rely on the poll of public opinion as to who Jesus is when you can go to the primary source? We'd love nothing more than to talk with you further about the claims of who Jesus is and and to sit down with you and to to walk with you through these gospels. Friend, you need to understand that, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the King who has ushered in a kingdom. And he is the one to whom we all must give account, and yet is the very same one who gave himself so that sinners like you and me can be made right with a holy and righteous God. Christians, I would encourage you to make sure that you are being faithful to help answer this question. One of the responsibilities we have as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ 
is to make sure that when people are perplexed about Jesus, we are present to give a clear and definite answer as to who he is. But be sure that you're not missing the point of who Jesus is either. Just this past week, a recent survey was released by Ligonier Ministries called the State of Theology. It's a biennial survey conducted by Lifeway Research, and it seeks to survey Americans based upon specific theological beliefs. And then it distinguishes between just kind of Americans in general and evangelicals in particular. And that survey was quite revealing. Just one of the, one of the statements, one of the things that it sought to ask of Christians, evangelical Christians, we're talking us, evangelical Christians, those who claim to believe the Bible, believe the gospel, 30% of evangelicals agreed with the statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 30% of evangelicals are missing the truth of who Jesus is, and they don't have a leg to stand on in a culture that's perplexed about Christ because they seem to be perplexed about Christ. Friends, well, let's not be part of that 30%. Let's make sure that we as Christians are being built up in the truth of who Christ is and because the Gospels are clear, the Bible is clear. There are many who remain perplexed about Jesus and the last thing the world needs is confused Christians who cause further confusion. Church, we need to build our ministries on the truth of God's revealed word, not on our best guesses. Well, friends, the gospel is on the move. Jesus was expanding his ministry base. He was sending his disciples out into the world to be those who would preach good news. And that would continue on. And we know that some 2,000 years later, that ministry, these early, these early inklings of ministry, as Jesus would prepare and send and then prepare and send, and as he would commission even the church in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples, that this message has made it all the way to here, or we wouldn't be in here this morning. So Whether here in St. Mary's County or in Twin Falls, Idaho, or among the nations, Christ is still calling his followers to go, to be sent with good news for a world that desperately needs to hear it. And this job is not yet complete. It's not yet complete as the Lord commissioned these men early on. So he commissions us to go forth in his authority to make known the good news of the kingdom. Friends, let that be your primary task this week, no matter what it is you're called to do. May you be reminded today that you and I have been called to participate in this kingdom work in one way or another, that we've been given a purposeful ministry that's got clear authority, that's got a clear priority of preaching the good news, and we should do so in total dependence and humility upon the Lord. But we also know that it is a perplexing ministry because so many people are stumbling over the reality of who Jesus is. So friends, let's go forth with this clarity. Let's go forth in this authority and let's go forth making sure that we as God's people are being clear as to who Christ is because he is the only hope for a fallen and broken world. Let's be faithful to that end. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for you showing us what is true and what is trustworthy. 
Father, we thank you that we've been given riches, inspired by your Holy Spirit, that we may know you better and that we may be called to faithful obedience in this world to accomplish the things you've given us to accomplish. Father, we know that our ministries will oftentimes look different than what we see even in these early disciples' lives. But yet we've been given same authority, same message, the same kingdom, the same Savior, and as we would see later on, the same Holy Spirit. Father, would you help us to go forward in faith and in faithfulness? Forgive us, Lord, where we have neglected the calling that you've given us, where we've neglected responsibility, where we've neglected the things that we've been clearly called and commissioned to go and do. Father, would you help us to steward the time you've given us today and this week faithfully, that the kingdom of God would be our first and foremost priority, and that we would go forth in your strength and your power for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.